be finding again John chapter 15. Our passage today will be starting in verse 12. So find that, have it ready to go here in a minute. We're here in week three of our summer series that seeks to answer the question for us, who is Jesus? We've seen so far that he's the ruler, he's the savior, and now this week we'll see him as our friend. As we begin today, it's important to realize why the big why question of what it is we're attempting to accomplish in this study this summer. Why study Jesus? Landon talked about this verse from Colossians last week. I think it's a great place to start. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let's face it, folks, there's lots of immature ideas about who Jesus is floating around in our culture today, floating around in our churches today. I hope not floating around in our pew today. But there's lots of misconceptions about who Jesus is, and we want, as elders and leaders in our church, we want us to have a mature vision of who it is that Jesus is. That's our goal today. We want an accurate view of Jesus Christ. Just a couple of things to think about before we dive in. First, the book of John. This gospel account was written by the Apostle John, who was the disciple that Jesus loved. It's truly a fascinating book. I love this book. When Landon laid out for us what the sermon series was this summer, and he gave us a choice of what it is we wanted to talk about. I saw John and I hopped on that one. Oh, that's the one I want to talk about, I said. I don't care when it happens. I don't care the date of it. I want that one. I love the book of John. I told my Sunday school class, because we studied John a couple of um, quarters, uh, in the past quarters, I said, John is like a freshly baked cookie. You take that thing out of the oven, you lay it on the cooling rack, it's just so glorious laying there. And you take that thing and you pick it up and it's still warm and you, cut, you pull it apart and there's gooey chocolate and gooey cookie and a pecan floating around and it just is a glorious thing. When you pull John apart and you begin to look at it, he's like a cookie. It is delicious. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I love the book of John. There are three synoptic accounts, three synoptic gospels besides the gospel of John. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of those synoptic gospels give us a biography of who Jesus is. Who Jesus was, what he taught, what he said, what he did. They give us a biographical sketch of who Jesus was as he lived on this earth. And those are crucial, crucial books. But John comes along and it's a different sort of book. It's not necessarily a biography like the other three. It's more a collection of things that John put together from his experiences with Jesus, and it came later in his life. And I think what happened with John is as he walked as the disciple of Jesus for a while, after Jesus has gone to be with the Father, and he's on his own, and he's walking this walk of faith with Christ, he has all these eureka moments. Oh, that 
that's what he meant. Oh, I never saw that before. Duh, where was I in all of this? And as he's walking along, he sees these things and he, he records for us these aha moments. He records for us seven signs and seven I am statements and all these sevens of things. And he puts them together in a way to show us what Jesus meant. It's a glorious thing. Not just what he did, but what he meant. There's a richness to it. And John is a fascinating, fascinating book. I think John wrote this in a place of maturity in his walk with Christ. Fascinating, fascinating book. I'll give you a bit of advice here. Somewhere in your circle of friends, in your circle of church, in your circle of family, find yourself an a mature follower of Christ Jesus. And I'm talking age. I'm talking mileage. Someone with a lot of miles behind them. Someone who has walked a long time with Christ Jesus and, and they've been faithful through it. Oh, they may have stumbled a time or two, but they've largely been faithful with following Christ. That person can teach you things you will never learn any other way. There's something about longevity in the walk with Christ. That person for me was my grandmother. She grew up a child of the Depression. She knew what it was to want and have need and be hungry. She had trials as she grew up as a child of the Depression. Then she became an adult, and she buried her husband at a fairly young age, and she lived more than 20 years by herself, trying to run a business, trying to keep things afloat, leaning hard upon the Lord, Lord all that time in her life. And she taught me things about what it is to trust the Lord that I would have never gotten anyplace else. Find for yourself a person, an older person, that's walked a long time with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, they'll teach you things you'll never learn any other way. Second, where's our passage located? One of my favorite speakers in the parachurch ministries is Alistair Begg. He has a program called Truth for Life. Comes on usually before 7 o'clock in the mornings on, I think, 91.9. I heard him say recently, as he was preaching, the mantra of real estate is location, location, location. But the mantra for proper biblical understanding is context, context, context. That's a good word from Alistair. If we lift the passage we're going to talk about out, and we just begin to build a theology around that passage, we can get some very different ideas about it than if we take it in where it's context is located. And its context is located in what we call the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. It happens in John roughly between chapters 13 and 16. And Jesus is talking to his 11 disciples. Judas has already removed himself in order to go uh, and work out the betrayal of Jesus. But he's talking to those 11 disciples. And he's trying to pour into them all kinds of information before he's crucified. 
before he's going to ascend to the Father. Before everything that they have known about him changes. And he's just filling them with all kinds of stuff. And he, he takes all these big ideas like uh, the Trinity and the function of the Spirit. And picks up a different one and he weaves those all together. And then he has this tapestry, this amazing tapestry of teaching. That we know as the upper room discourse. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And it's from this upper room discourse that we find our passage today. He is talking to these disciples. And something important to know is these disciples were clueless. They just did not get it. They could not understand a Messiah who was to come, who was to be crucified, who was to be resurrected... They, they couldn't, there's no place in the Jewish mindset for what was to transpire. They couldn't get it. And Jesus even told them, you're not going to remember this. I'm going to give you as much as I can in these closing moments of my life. I'm going to give you all of it. And I'm going to depend on the Holy Spirit to come along afterward and remind you of it and to bring you into this teaching. In terms of context, it's important to notice that our passage is built into Jesus' description of himself as the true vine. That's why we read the vine and the branches earlier. We're not talking about the vine and branches per se in our passage, but it's a further explanation of what is said right preceding it. So keep the vine and branches illustration in your brain as we go because we're going to refer back to it, even though our passage is a little different than the vine and branch. So we keep going back to it, and you'll hear me refer to it. So remember that. Keep it in your brain. I'll refer back several times. Okay, our big idea this morning is simple. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is our friend. Let's read the Word of God. This is John 15, starting in verse 12. 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Pray with me, church. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your spirit this morning. Father, like the old hymn says, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Lord comes down. And we ask you, Spirit of God, to come and speak through your word this morning. Penetrate the hearts of your people. May we have knowledge and understanding that can only happen as we're exposed to the word of God. And this we lift in the mighty name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So, what does it mean that Jesus is our friend? Sometimes the best way to uh, describe what something is is to start with what it is not. In 2006, country singer Josh Turner released this song called Me and God, and it has these lyrics. 
there ain't nothing that can't be done by me and God. Ain't nobody going to come between me and God. One day we'll live together where the angels trod, me and God. Early in the morning, talking it over, me and God. Late at night, talking it over, me and God. You could say we're like two peas in a pod, me and God. He's my father, he's my friend. The beginning and the end, he rules the world with a staff and a rod. We're a team, me and God. Besides the obvious grammar issues, you can rest assured you will never, never, ever, never, never, ever be. Not even in your glorified, resurrected state, you will never be two peas in a pod with holy, holy God. Never. It is not going to happen. He is always the great other. He's the great holy, holy God and you are his creature. Even the most glorious angels are not two peas in a pod with Almighty God. Neither will we be. He says, we're a team, me and God. Oh, no, we're not a team. He's the team. He's the team. He doesn't need any of us. What Josh has done is create a God of his own imagination. And if we're not careful, we can create a friend in Jesus that is of our own creation. It's a very Bible Belt kind of thing to do. A Bible Belt mistake. Takes just a little bit of truth and mixes it with some outright error. And it forms for us a God that we like. A God that we want to serve. But it's not the true and living God. This is the kind of God that comes beside me. And he'll do whatever I want him to do. Uh, like, you know, uh, that passage in Corinthians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, in other words, I can ace the test. I can win the uh, football team uh, game. I can do the job that I want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not at all what that verse is about. That's a Bible belt taking of an idea and making it into something else. The bad grammar fits that song well. Me and God, me first, God second. I'm the pilot, God's my co-pilot. He comes alongside and he affirms everything that I do. That is an unbiblical idea of what it is for Jesus to be our friend, for God to be our friend. So we want to look at the Word of God and see what the Word of God has to say about it. So let's look. Look at our passage. It starts in verse 12 with this idea. Love one another. Skip down to verse 17 at the end of our passage. Love one another. We're going to call this a sandwich. Love one another is the bread. The filling of the sandwich is he's our friend. And we're going to start with the filling of the sandwich. And we're going to go out to the bread. And we're going to take this passage apart. And we're going to look at it and see what it is that God is telling us. Or Jesus is telling us in this passage. There's at least four things we can say about friendship. First, friendship is for believers. It's for believers. Now, you may say, wait just a minute, boy. Isn't Jesus a friend to sinners? Like we have this old hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And you'd be exactly right. Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
I put down there on your notes, Matthew eleven nineteen and Luke 7, 34. And you can go look at those later today. Hallelujah, Jesus is a friend of sinners. We needed him to be a friend of sinners, to come to us in our sinfulness and in the place that we were as sinners. And he met us there and sought us out to be his own. In fact, one commentary on this passage says that the writer... Uh, said that the word for friend could be translated as love. No greater love has anyone than this, that he would lay down his life for those he loves. And Jesus did that. He laid down his life for those he loves. Understand, though, Jesus is friend extraordinaire. He gave his life not only for his friends, but for his enemies as well. But we have to maintain our context. We have to be true to this passage. And this passage is talking about a different kind of friendship, an exclusive kind of friendship, a kind of friendship that is specifically geared to the believer. This comes from several places, initially from context. Who was he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. They were the first believers in Christ Jesus. This is part of the vine analogy that is just preceding it. He's the vine. He's the source of life. Believers are the branches who draw nourishment from that vine. Unbelievers are not connected to it. Unbelievers are not part of the vine. They're not branches. Look at verse 13. Jesus laid down his life for his friends. And that's what he called these 11 men. He died for his followers. They are the ones who appropriate his death by faith. Look at verse 16. I chose you. I chose you. That's salvation. The friendship described here is for believers. Next, we learn this friendship is not reciprocal. It's not reciprocal. What in the world does he mean by reciprocal? The $11 word there. Reciprocal. Let me illustrate it by it a couple of examples. When we were much younger and our children were much younger, we had members of our family who also were much younger and had children about our same age. So when birthdays would come around, we would send their kids presents. And when their birthday came around, we would send them a card and all this sort of stuff. They were busy with their life. Our birthday, our kid's birthday came around. Hello? We're here. And so when we stopped that, they got all upset. You didn't remember so-and-so's birthday. Well, you didn't remember ours. You're not being reciprocal in this relationship. If we remember your kids' birthdays, you need to remember ours. That's part of being a family. See, that was a non-reciprocal relationship. Have you ever been in a non-reciprocal friendship? Hello, y'all want to go to the movies with us this week? Hey, y'all want to go to dinner? Hey, you want to go? We're going to the game. You want to go to the game? We're going to the game. But I dial and I dial and I dial, but my phone never rings. They never invite. We do all the inviting. You do all the giving. Ever had one of those kind of friendships? That is not a healthy friendship. 
That's a non-reciprocal friendship. In human relationships, a non-reciprocal relationship is a bad thing. It's not worthy of your time. A non-reciprocal relationship in a human setting is a bad thing. But in a non-reciprocal relationship with Almighty God is a divine thing and a very healthy thing. This is of divine origin. We just looked at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Man left to himself would never, ever choose God. The Bible says we're born with dead and sinful hearts. These sinful hearts look out only for gratifying the individual. They're not looking for God. Look at this uh, quote from Anthony Daniels. In the modern view, Unbridled personal freedom is the only good to be pursued. Any obstacle to that is a problem to be overcome. This is the modern view. See, the world screams louder and louder and louder that the only way to true happiness is to follow your feelings and to choose your own truth and to live according to yourself. It's a very modern view, except it's not very modern. That's exactly what the serpent told Eve. And Adam, to do, you need to go your own way. He said not to eat this fruit. Don't worry about that. God said you're going to die. You're not going to die. Are you crazy? That thing's good. You need to eat it. You'll be just like God. And that fruit is an obstacle to be removed. That commandment is an obstacle to be removed. Ever since the garden, we choose ourselves every single time. But look, Jesus didn't choose himself. He chose you. He chose you. He chose us. It's one-sided. He's the chooser. He's the chooser. Look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He gets to command. We don't get to command back. We sure want to try. But we don't get to command him. He's the commander, not us. Again, think back to the vine and branch analogy that we read earlier. He's the vine. We're the branches. He can do just fine without us. But we're totally dependent upon the vine for life and nourishment. Hear me well here. God can do just fine without you and me. That's un-American. That is not a Western idea. We don't like that at all. God does not need us. Remember, Paul was addressing the crowd in Athens. He was talking to those people, and and he said this in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Anything. He did not need us. He doesn't need us. Us in our selfish humanity do not like that statement. It's hard to accept. He doesn't need me. He can do just fine without me. Well, so what? Why am I making such a big point of this? Why does this matter? Because as his followers, we got to stay humble. we got to stay humble in our heart and in our posture before Almighty God. He is the friend. We're the recipients of his friendship. He's the giver. 
We're the takers. He gives us love. He gives us mercy. He gives us grace. He gives us provision. He gives us everything in this life, and we are the ones who take it. It's not a reciprocal relationship, and the Word declares this non-reciprocal relationship is healthy. It's healthy. It's the way it should be. He's the giver. We're the taker. Next, this friendship is based on revelation. Based on revelation. What do I mean by that? It comes from, uh, directly from verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I called you friends, for all that I heard from the Father I made known to you. That's interesting. He calls us friends because he's told us what the plans are. We've been drawn to the inner circle of knowledge, you might say. The only two that had ever been called friends of God prior to this are Abraham and Moses. Um, I think it's Exodus 33, 11. It said that Moses went into the tent of meeting and God talked with him there as though they were two friends conversing with one another. Abraham and Moses had direct revelation from God, direct interaction with God. And he gave them lots and lots of information about his plan for their lives and for redemption in the future. Think about what Jesus is saying to these men and to us. We're friends of God on that same kind of playing field as Moses and Abraham. We're friends of God and he is our friend because he's made his revelation known to us. We have a greater revelation than Abraham and Moses ever had because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that God had planned for us. We've been told all about it. We truly know and understand far more than what Abraham and Moses ever did. He called us into a deeper relationship as friends because he's given us a better and more complete revelation than those two men ever could have dreamed. We have the privilege of plumbing the depths of the revelation of God by studying his word. That's awesome. This friendship is based on revelation. Further, Jesus says this relationship, this friendship is fruit-bearing. Verse 16, I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. As believers in this non-reciprocal revelation-based relationship, we're called to go and to be fruitful. My mind goes back to the garden. Think about the garden with me. Jesus created all the animals. He created Adam and Eve. He told them and charged them to go, be fruitful, and multiply. Jesus has these 11 men. He makes them his friend. He tells them, you're my friend. You have the revelation. Go, be fruitful, and multiply. What is this fruit? This fruit is converts. He wants us to have converts. Think about these 11 guys. They were the seed of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. After his ministry and teaching and discipling, these were the ones who he left to change the world. That's some heavy, heavy responsibility on these guys. If I were starting a new work, I don't think I would put all my money on these 11. What a bunch of knuckleheads. They didn't get anything. They didn't understand a thing. They were 
goofy guys. But Jesus chose those knuckleheads. And he chooses knuckleheads today, just like us. Aren't you glad he chooses knuckleheads? I fit. I fit. And he expects us as knuckleheads to come alongside and to make more knuckleheads. <laughs> to make converts. To win people to Christ Jesus. To spread the gospel. This friendship is fruit bearing. Okay. That's inside our sandwich. That's our friendship. Okay. Our friendship is the inside of our sandwich. We've got a friendship sandwich. Now let's look at the bread. This friendship is to function in community. That's why I said, love one another, love one another, you're my friends. It's to function in community. That's why we've got to love one another. That's why we've got to stick together. That's why unity in the body is so very crucial. Have you ever known a family member where like, grandma is the hub of the wheel that holds that thing together? Right? So when grandma dies, finally, the family doesn't much meet together anymore. They sort of kind of go their own ways. They don't, there's not the closeness anymore. That hub has been removed from that family. In the same kind of way, Jesus was the hub of these guys. He is the glue that's holding them together, and he's going to be crucified, and he's going to resurrect, and he's going to ascend to the Father, and he's going to leave these 11 guys, and he's saying to them, you have got to stick together. You have got to be uniform. You have got to survive by staying with one another. You can just feel this pressure that Jesus is exerting on these guys. He's just beating this You've got to stay together. You've got to be unified. You've got to be staying there. You've got to be steadfast with one another. Quit trying to outdo one another. Quit trying to decide who's the greatest in the kingdom. Quit trying to decide who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left. You've got to stick together. You've got to stick together. You've got to stick together. You have to, first of all, be mine. That's the inside of the sandwich. You've got to stick together. That's the bread of the sandwich. There exists a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about that. It has to be cultivated and it has to be guarded. There also exists in the church as a whole, God's witness to the world, a, a witness that has to be cultivated and guarded. Which is more important? The relationship with Jesus or the group as a whole? And the answer is yes, both. Both. The individual relationship and the corporate relationship go together. Both are enriched by the other. Both are successful based upon the other. You cannot do friendship with Jesus alone. You can try. But Jesus wants that friendship to happen in community. You can't just go to church and have this nice civic organization. It will be fruitless. It won't have any kind of dynamic to it because you just meet together. You might as well have a civic club. He says those two things have to be in tandem. You have to have healthy people, and those healthy people have to form a community. They have to be together. Can you see how the vine and branches fits this? Can you see how he's, why this is a further explanation of vine and branches? Hey, you've got to be connected to the vine. You've got to abide in the vine. But the vine makes this big 
fruitful vine, all the branches held together by nourishment from the vine. Get a good relationship with me. Be in great friendship with me. But you're part of a larger friendship, a group of friends of mine. You have to be an abiding branch. Oh, that's a great, great privilege. Got to be connected to the vine. Our dearest friend and Savior, Jesus Christ. You got to have that. But the vine is only as fruitful as it contains lots of healthy branches, each contributing to the overall fruitfulness of the vine as a whole. Do you see? Do you see? That's what he's talking about. That's the teaching from the vine and the branches and the friendship with Jesus. It's for believers. It's non-reciprocal. It's based on revelation. It's fruit-bearing. It results in and fuels a healthy community. That's what he's talking about. Okay, that's nice. But what does it have to do with me? What does Jesus want me to do with this? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus wants us to do several things. First thing that Jesus wants us to do is to repent and believe. That's the most important takeaway today, repent and believe. It's the most important takeaway anytime you hear the Word of God preach. Repent and believe. Jesus wants you in a living relationship with Him that begins with hearing the gospel message, the good news, that God has made a way for sinful men to be brought to holy God. That's an amazing, amazing message. He then calls upon you and me to acknowledge our sin before him, turn from it, repent from it, believe that Jesus lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve. And by believing in his name, we have life. And we're grafted in as a branch into the vine. That's what he wants us to do. That's the first thing he wants us to do. Repent and believe. Second, Jesus wants us to abide in him. He wants us to abide in him. In this instance, the word abide means remain, to persist. Remain, to persist. To abide in him goes back to the vine analogy again. He's the vine, we're the branches. The only way for that branch to survive is to be in connection to the vine. The branch has to stay connected to him. We have to stay. We have to persist. We have to not give up. We can't just be running to, for Jesus for a little while and then go, yeah, that's enough, and turn and walk away. You'll wither and die. You've got to stay connected. We've got to stay connected for the rest of our lives. So how do we abide? Primarily through his word. We have to listen to him as he speaks to us through his word. We have to consistently take nourishment from his word. You have to be in the word, be in the word, be in the word. You got to come here, hear the word. You got to be in the word. You got to be in the word. You get it? You got to be in the word. You got to be in the word of God. You got to know it. You got to be there. You got to be in it. You got to take it. Think if you were, uh, you brought a newborn home from the hospital. What happens to that newborn? It goes for an hour or so, and ah, it wants milk. You give it milk. It doesn't last long. Ah, it wants milk. You give it milk. That's 24 hours a day, even at night. Ah, it wants milk. You give it milk. Because the only way for the infant to survive and thrive and grow is a consistent intake of milk. 
The only way for a Christian, a branch of the vine, to grow and to thrive is a consistent intake. You've got to be in the Word. You have to be in the Word. Be steadfast. Be connected to our friend Jesus. Abide in Him. Next, our friend Jesus wants to obey Wants us to obey his command. That's verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That little word, if, would be far better understood since. You are my friends since you do what I command you. You are my friends since you do what I command you. This is purposely third on the list. Why? Because the other things have to come first. Obedience is a byproduct of being in a repenting, believing, abiding relationship with Christ. That comes first. That's foremost. That's of utmost importance. The relationship always comes first. And then the obedience follows out of that. Don't get it backwards. If we get it backwards, we get into this works-based religion that's dead. And Jesus never calls us to dead religion. He calls us to a relationship of life with him. We're to obey his commands. Well, what are his commands? Well, Jesus worked with knuckleheads, and so he made it easy. It's very easy. We studied in my Sunday school, John, for two months. My Sunday school better get this. What was Jesus' overarching goal in his life? What was his overarching goal in his life? What did he seek to do above all else? Glorify the Father. Glorify the Father. Everything else was in relation to that overarching goal to glorify the Father. I will glorify the Father by going with this group of guys. I will glorify the Father by teaching this group of guys. I will glorify the Father by healing and doing all the miracles. I will glorify the Father by speaking His words. I will glorify the Father by becoming like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and die for these people. I will glorify the Father by becoming a resurrected person. I will glorify the Father by, after that resurrecting, ascending to the Father. I will glorify the Father as I'm with the Father in sending the Spirit. I will glorify the Father. I will glorify the Father. That's his number one command. Glorify the Father. Love the Father. Love the Father. Do everything in your life that would show love to the Father. That's a big command. Love the Father. Glorify the Father. And then the second command is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love other people like you love you. That's paying a lot of attention to other people because we pay a lot of attention to ourselves. Love others like you love yourself. If you would not like to be hurt in some way, don't hurt them in that way. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Love other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two commands. They're going to keep you really, really busy. Do everything to glorify the Father, to love the Father. And number two, love other people like you love you. Our friend wants us to obey. Jesus wants us to obey. Now, 
we're going to get this one. Our friend Jesus wants us to pray in his name. I purposely have not even touched that one. Because everything else comes before that. Pray in his name. And he said that twice. He said that twice to us. He says it, let's see, in verse 7 and in verse 16. He says, you ask the Father anything in my name and I'll do it for you. Poof, guaranteed, done. Ask the Father anything in my name. I'll do it for you. Okay. I want a Porsche in Jesus' name. Where's my Porsche? That's dumb. The prosperity preachers would have you believe such things. Ask God in his name for all this stuff and he'll give it to you. But Jesus never, never, ever guaranteed material prosperity anywhere to his followers. In his name means according to his character. Let me say that again. In his name means according to his character. What's his character built on? Glorify the Father. Glorify the Father. Glorify the Father. See, it looks far less like give me a portion in Jesus' name, but far more like, Lord, let me glorify the Father with this belligerent to the gospel boss, this belligerent to the gospel spouse, this belligerent to the gospel child. Let me glorify the Father in this relationship. I'm going to need wisdom like, because my mouth's going to get me in trouble with it, I can guarantee you. Let me glorify the Father in that. It looks less like, Lord, heal me from cancer. Although that's a good prayer. But it looks far more like, Lord, as I walk through this cancer, let me glorify you. Let it not be just about me and my little stuff. Let it be about you. Let me glorify you. See, that's a guaranteed prayer answer. He'll do that. He wants us to live according to his character. He wants his Father to be glorified. When we pray in his name and according to his character, it revolutionizes our prayer life. Try it. What you pray for in order to glorify the Father tends to be very different than what you pray for to meet my own needs. Glorify the Father according to His character. Revolutionary prayer. Finally, our friend Jesus wants us to love our Christian brothers and sisters. Love them. He wants us in vital fellowship with His church and with His people. That's verses 12, that's 17. That's the bread of the sandwich. All of this that he grants to us, salvation, abiding, obedience, and prayer is to overflow into a relationship with Christ through his church. We're to fight for love for each other, for unity for each other. We're to ha- we have to have each other. God's mission depends upon the church of Jesus Christ to fulfill the great commission to send the gospel on around the world. Let's consider just one aspect of the mission of the church at Emmanuel today. Let's consider foreign missions. Just think foreign missions. We have a goal of $110,000 to send to foreign missions. 
Could you do that by yourself? There are some in this room that could probably do 110,000 by themselves. I couldn't. You probably couldn't either. But together, we can put our resources together and we can come up with $110,000. If we're faithful, we can do it. There's no way to do it alone. We go to Kenya in Africa. That's amazing. That's phenomenal. That's a great thing. Phenomenal thing. I can't make enough good about our mission to Kenya and Africa. But Africa's a huge continent. Kenya's not all there is to Africa. Africa is massive. We can't reach all of Africa by ourselves. But see, we can take our 110,000 and we can put it with the other money that 47,000 Southern Baptists put together and all of us together pooling our resources, we can go to the continent of Africa, the continent of North America, the continent of South America, to all kinds of unreached people that there is no way we could ever, ever reach. It takes us all. It takes us all. That's just missions. That's just one idea. How about teaching the body of Christ? We can't teach all the body of Christ. At Emmanuel, we can teach our people. We can't teach everyone. The mission of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is expansive. It's huge. We have a massive responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus knew that. He knew that we'd have to have each other in order to obey Him. I want you to think of it this way. You and I need to be a healthy, vibrant friend of Jesus. And we need to be connected to this little limb that we call Emmanuel. And this little limb called Emmanuel needs to be connected to the giant trunk of the tree of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the limbs of the healthy churches of the Lord Jesus Christ together make this phenomenal great tree of the kingdom of God that together can do amazing things in reaching our world. The church needs vital, healthy, vibrant friends of Jesus. All working together. All pulling together to send the gospel to a world in need. Jesus is our friend. He's our friend. Let's pray.